This episode of Inside the Goblin Universe brought to you by SeatsLink.com, the complete ticket experience. Use promo code GOBLINS with your purchase. SeatsLink.com. Hi, my name's John Downs, and you're listening to Inside the Goblin Universe. Hello again, Goblins, and welcome to another edition of Inside the Goblin Universe. I am one of your hosts. My name is Ronald Murphy. I am the other host, Brian Bowden. How are you doing today, my friend? Oh, I'm, I'm doing fantastic. Slight plumbing problems, but uh, real plumbing, not personal plumbing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, other than that, that's just the goblins of our, our home. Uh, they need a it little is. TLC today. It's, it's the brownies playing tricks on you. They're keeping yes. you honest, aren't they? Oh, they're keeping... I mean, I don't know if I haven't fed them or I locked the goblin door or whatever, but they're not, uh, you know, they're not happy today. I think you have to leave them out, honey. I think that that is the thing that you have to do. Yes, I think I'm going to leave them out, honey, because ah. I really don't need any more problems from the fairies. Well, the good thing about having a, a house brownie is that they can do ill towards you, but also they can grant you fortunes from time to time. So maybe that's what's going to happen on your, your next couple of days. Uh, you know, I'm going to ask for a couple of fortunes to come my way. And of course, <laughs> being the person that I am, I'm going to share that fortune with as many people as I can to make the world I, a better place. I, I Well, I'll tell you, that's, that's, I'm glad that that's a great lead-in, because one of the fortunes of the cryptozoological and paranormal world is on with us today. I am honored to, to, to have him as a friend of mine, and to have him as a publisher, and he is actually on our show. He's stepping inside the Goblin Universe with us, with us today, and it's none other, straight from Devon, England, Mr. Jonathan Downs. Mr. Downs, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing fine, guys. Now, how are you two? Well, now that we have you on, excellent. I mean, I've been yes. looking forward to, to talking to you again from uh, uh, for a while. I mean, we talked to, together uh, uh, personally, but I mean, to share you uh, with the wealth of listeners that we have from around the world, uh, I think that this is uh, spreading a little bit of the fortune around. And Mr. Grouse, like I said, every time you're on a program or any time you're up to something, uh, I'd like to be up on top of it because I really respect who you are and how you approach the world of the cryptozoological. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Well, you're so. So let me. That that being said, what have you been doing? Now I've been keeping up. So tell me what your your latest adventure adventure has been. Well, um, the thing that um, has been taking up most of my time this year has been involved with a video games company called Capcom. Yes, I saw that. Whenever I saw the the introduction to Capcom, I automatically assumed that they were simply going to make you the next superhero of the game. Oh, well, that goes without saying. <laughs> a little cape and a mask? Well, yeah, I don't really think there's much of a market for fat bloke in a wheelchair. <laughs> fat bloke Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's where you go wrong, sir. Remember, yeah. in X-Men, Professor yes. Xavier is in a wheelchair and he has tremendous power. Yes, but he's got a much cooler haircut. <laughs> <laughs> but you could you you could be the world the the one that tames the world of the fourteen. So you can have mean, the, all at your, yeah. your fingertips. I like the world being wild. I don't want to tame it. Oh, there you go. Very good. Okay, so so and, and they're not making you a superhero. But what are they? What are yes. they doing over there? What's those crazy folks over at Capcom doing? Well, uh, this is the second time we've helped them with one of their games in the Monster Hunter series. We um, helped them publicize the 
second one back in 2008, I think it was, um, when they sponsored an expedition to South America looking for giant anacondas and something called the Die Die. And this time around, it's for a new game, Monster Hunter World, and they asked me and the gang if we could help give them some publicity. So we took a team of journalists out into the countryside to a place around here where there have been lots of sightings of what appeared to be mysterious giant cats. And so we took them, a bunch of townies, we took them out into the, into the countryside, we showed them how to search for hair samples and how to lay down sand traps and how to do other stuff. And much to my great pleasure, not only did they get they got hair samples, the sand traps got all sorts of footprints. Okay, there were mostly dogs and one, one or two foxes, but we did, you know, it proved the concept, proved it worked. But they also found a skeleton in, the, uh, in a small thicket just by the side of the road. And, and the skeleton turned out to be from a deer. And at the moment, we're still trying to find out what it was that killed the deer. But it's very interesting that it turned up right in the place where there have been loads of sightings. Now, was the killing unusual in any way? Is there any kind of forensic markers on the carcass or on the bones that show that this deer may have been killed in a way other than a natural means? Well, what we've done so far, we've... Uh, We've discounted. It wasn't. It wasn't a roadkill. It wasn't anything to do with humans, and it wasn't badgers because badgers just rip the carcass to shreds. So at the moment, it was either a fox, a dog, or something more interesting. Something unexplained. Well, at the moment, um, we've got our people in. Uh, my friend Lars Thomas, who runs the CFZ lab in Copenhagen, he's examining the pictures at the moment. Very so, cool. wait and see. I mean, I w I'm expecting uh, a result within the next two or three days. So, when we do our next episode of our web TV show, which is again either Wednesday or Thursday, um, I hope we'll be able to announce the results then. Well, I'll be looking forward fantastic. to that. Yeah, and we'll get that posted also on our website there, Brian. Yes. So all, the, all the followers of this particular case will be able to link into that and find out what's going on. Uh, now, besides uh, those kind of cryptids, the cat-like cat cryptids, uh, what other cryptids are you exploring as well? What other, uh, other unexplained phenomena is Capcom focusing on? Well, the Capcom thing, they've offered a reward of... £50,000, that's not dollars, that's pounds, which is about $62,000. That's right. That, that, that's that's right. a lot of cash because, you know, the, the pound is really beating the dollar pretty badly, but uh, yes, yes, yes. So it's, 50, so it's 50 grand in pounds they've offered for uh, the best evidence that anybody comes up with for... Um, the existence of 10 different cryptids. Now, you're going to have to forgive me because I'm not in the office. I'm sitting in my favourite armchair and I can't remember what the 10 cryptids are. But all you have to do is you can go to Monster Hunter World on 
Twitter or just go to the Capcom website and they will give you all the details. Right. Well, we know, Brian, one of them if, uh, uh, for sure is, is a mermaid. They have a mermaid on there, uh, as well as uh, a Bigfoot. I can tell you exactly what they are if you'd like. So number one is Bigfoot. All right. Number two is our friend from Scotland, Nessie. Mm -hmm. Number three is the Mon a Mongolian deathworm. Oh, right, right, right. Four is a mermaid. Uh, All right there. Only four. Five is. I, I, I would much, I'd much rather uh, run into a mermaid than the uh, Mongolian deathworm. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, five is the earthhound. Um, I think stories of mermaids, from especially from Cornwall, you really wouldn't want to run into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're not all pleasant, are they? The ones that are not subjugated by European folktales are pretty wild and chaotic. So I, I do yes. understand what you're talking about there, my friend. And worse than European folktales, the ones that have been subjugated by Disney. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> I, I mean, this is a cool... The mermaid is the little mermaid from Disney. Yes. Well, no. <laughs> um, we'd be shocked, but uh, I mean, after the mermaid and, and the earth hound, you have Yeti, you have the lovely uh, Chupacabra, mm -hmm. and then you go into a flying snake of Nimbia. Uh, of course, the Yahweh. You can't, can't leave them out. And then the Cornish Owlman finishes the list. So, uh, not the Cornish hen, the Cornish owlman. Yes. Um, it's an intense list. Now, Jonathan, are they asking for proof for each one of these, or just one of them? Any one of them. Any one of them. So, so you've got a one in ten shot at trying to prove this. Yes, this is great. But the problem some of the stuff that's been sent in already is so palpably fake. <laughs> and there is, of course, my darling stepdaughter who dressed my little granddaughter, who's three, up as a Bigfoot, and had her padding across this playground, which was fairly, even that far, it was fairly unconvincing. And then he came up to the camera and said, Hello, Granddad, I'm a Bigfoot. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's that beautiful. Yeah, but so you, but they're asking for more than just photographic evidence, right? This is this is, has to be um, observable scientific evidence. Is that correct, or, or, or what? Well, the trouble is, in this era of Photoshop, photograph photographic evidence uncorroborated is just useless. Sure, one hundred percent correct. Yeah, because I mean, I'm no expert on folk on Photoshop, but I could knock up a convincing looking Bigfoot picture or a convincing looking UFO picture in 10 minutes, you know. So it's got to be something much better than that. I mean, you, you have to have a physical piece of the, the creature that could be gone through with a scientific testing through a lab and come back with uh, an unknown or a variable. But the problem you have with Bigfoot alone, and we're just going to focus on that for one second, is that if there is a relationship to man, it's going to register things that are, are found in human beings versus the Bigfoot. So that will make a suspect, you know, result right off the bat. When people find these hairs in the woods, a lot of times, oh, that's human hair. Well, it may be, we may have some DNA that says it's human hair, but we could have a relationship between man and Bigfoot. 
Well, you're going to have that even more so with things like the Almaty. Oh, right, right, right. almost certainly far closer, far more closely related to our own species than Bigfoot or any of the other big man beasts. Because Almaty, in some people's eyes, probably is... Uh, zoologically a modern human it's just a modern human with different morphological features mm. Yes. Yeah, the one famous case of, uh, of uh, supposed almacy uh, in that one village in Russia where the townspeople had their way with her and she actually produced an offspring, um, they, you know, uh, disinterred the body and they found out that uh, it, it, it linked back to sub-equatorial Africa, didn't it? Yeah, now the big question there, there are two possible explanations for this. One is that the slave trade, which at that time, because at that time Georgia was part of, and I'm talking about Georgia in Eastern Europe, right, right. Uh, was part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire did deal, deal in slaves in Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's not thought that the slave trade went as far north as Georgia, but it's either that she's an escaped slave who, uh, and we now know, we, we don't know as much as we thought we did about the slave trade in the Ottoman Empire, or, which is to me far more exciting, it is the possibility that the currently accepted belief that all modern humans came out of Africa at the same time, or the ancestors of all modern humans came out of Africa at the same time, just not true. And that actually there were some more primitive, uh, earlier groups of people who came from sub-Saharan Africa and came out of Africa into Asia and into Europe. And that this wild woman, Zena, was actually a descendant of an earlier out offshoot of the human race coming out of Africa, which is fascinating to me. And, and, a lot. Yeah, and absolutely worthy of mainstream study as well. This isn't something that's on the fringe and, you know, only crazy people talk about. This should be discussed in, you know, in open academic forums. Well, I think most cryptozoology should. It's the, the sort of cryptozoology which I deal with is stuff which, as far as I'm concerned, is scientifically valid. The sort of cryptozoology that so many people, unfortunately, deal with, which is just hocus-pocus and uh, mumbo-jumbo and wishful thinking, is something that both me and my organization have tried to... Uh, distance ourselves from over the years. Yes, yes. And, and, but if you look at mainstream, you know, television, media, what have you, uh, it's, it, it's sensationalistic. That's what people want. They want people to go out in the woods with baseball bats and immediately get responses from what they call, you know, Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And, and they don't understand the science behind this, this kind of, uh, you know, biology. And that's what we're dealing with. We're, we're dealing with biological factors. If these are indeed living, breathing creatures, they have to exist in parameters of, of you know, specified scientific behaviors, and, and they have to follow certain 
have niches, they have to, you know, have a habitat. And, and I, th I don't think that people are considering that because it's not as sexy to talk about the scientific aspects as it is to go out in the woods and immediately start beating on trees with baseball bats. Right. Oh, yeah, and, you know, the sort of stuff that we do does not involve dressing up in army camouflage and running about in circles saying, hey, there's a squatch in that there forest. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely, that's right. The uh, Make America Great Again bumper sticker on your on your pickup truck. I, mean, I understand that completely. With the gun rack. you got to get the gun rack out there. You know, I, right. I, I, what, what I always question is how much the Smithsonian in the U.S., and uh, globally, as well as maybe the British Museum, how much they really do know about these these uh, new species, and how much they're just keeping very close to the vest. For what reason, I don't know, um, but I have a feeling that had we gone into their archives, it's kind of like that Indiana Jones moment, the first one, where they take the Ark of the Covenant into a huge hangar, and it's just amongst everything else that's there, you know. I'm sure there's remains of Bigfoots or uh, Loch Ness or all these cryptids and uh, that are there, and, and for some reason it is keeping it very, very close to, the, close to the best. Well, if they are doing this, the reason why they're doing it is fairly self-evident. It's because governments don't... Governments work on the, on the principle of creative inertia. If they can get away with doing nothing, they will. Yep. And can you imagine let's, imagine, let's have a hypothesis that some trucker 20 years ago was driving along, ran over a Bigfoot, and the uh, Bigfoot corpse is now in the Smithsonian basement somewhere. If the American government had to admit that yes, there is another species of hominid in North America, worse, yes, there's another member of the genus Homo in right. North America. Can you imagine the can of worms or the loads of cans of worms that would open up? For example, first of all, do they have social security? Do they, do they, can you imagine the Vatican gets in there? Do they have souls? Mm -hmm. do, do they have to, are people going to have to send missionaries to them? Do, are they, can they be conscripted into the army? Uh, should they get vax, should young Sasquatches be vaccinated against childhood diseases? Right. You know, it is, it is the sort of logistical nightmare which any government would run a mile from having to do anything about. So if there is a cover-up for Sasquatch, that's why, that's why. Uh, and the whole idea too about protection uh, that's the other thing if there is indeed proof that uh, another species of animal uh, is out there the idea of protecting forests and stuff that has to be a logistical nightmare as well to figure out the, the, yeah. the, the migratory range and everything like that the whole thing the whole thing if I was if I was a high ranking politician and someone dumped a Inclusive proof of Sasquatch on my desk, I would be panicking to everybody's business now. Well, there's, in the U.S., there's certain states that do have laws on the books where you cannot hurt, hunt, or kill any one of these creatures. Um, and you'll go to jail. It, 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 it is a, a, a serious federal crime for them, uh, more state-related crime. So they're... they're certain hints that are leaning towards the fact that maybe somebody does know something and I agree with you about not necessarily the vaccination but on the on the Vatican aspect of it 
how do you explain this through the scriptures? You know, how because then at that point everything that they've been talking about and they've been preaching for for thousands of years kind of goes to the wayside. Or see, that's a good point, and, and I've actually studied a lot of this uh, in relation because I have a, a huge religious uh, uh, studies background. Um, uh, the Mormon faith uh, actually is very open to the idea of a Bigfoot existing. And a lot of the prominent researchers in the field of cryptozoology based around Bigfoot studies actually do have, uh, are members of the Mormon faith because it shows the idea of biblical facts manifesting themselves in the 21st century. Uh, so whenever you talk about giants in the earth, or you're talking about, you know, the the, the, the lost tribes, or you're talking about descendants of Cain, right. this is all evident if you would so change your perspective and look at the world of cryptozoology that way. This is all made evident in the figure of the Bigfoot. It, what do you have to say about that, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm, I'm just processing that. And uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I tend to be far more of a cynic, and I think that the reason things are, that if there are cover-ups, I tend to think it's purely so governments don't have to do anything about it. Sure. And that's a good point, because one of my interests as well is the idea of uh, these giant burials, burials of giants that were starting to be uncovered uh, in the mid-1800s up until the early 1900s throughout the United States. There was one uh, that I found a newspaper clipping for about 12 miles from where I live uh, in the late 1800s, where a farmer was plowing his field in these, you know, these, these Indian mounds uh, that were around here, left presumably by the woodland culture. Uh, was plowed over, and that's what happened during this this time period. You know, no idea of, of Indian artifacts and, and the preservation of that particular culture was ever thought of. It was just simply plowed over. Um, but they uncovered a the body of a giant, and these kind of reports uh, are, are you know stretched from Minnesota uh, the whole way down to Florida. Um, now the interesting thing about this. A lot of these could be uh, uh, faked, or a lot of them could be, um, you know, hyperbolized in some way. But what I find so intriguing is the early ones was from these very small towns out in the middle of nowhere, where the front page of the paper would say one day, giant uncovered, you know, then the next day they take the remains of the local university, or somebody from the local university comes, and then the day after that they're contacting the Smithsonian, and then there's nothing more in the paper whenever you have this kind of governmental contact. Now, I know that people were talking about in, the, in this, this particular Victorian period, the idea of yellow journalism was out there, the idea of, you know, making up stories. That's fine and dandy, but is it possible that the genesis of these stories were from actual cases of giants being uncovered in farmers' fields? Now, there's a guy I know in Holland called Theo Padumans, He's been writing about these, and also, uh, because somebody posted one of these pictures on Twitter last week, and claimed it was a Neanderthal, well Neanderthals aren't, were never 10, 11 foot tall for one thing, right. but several people, including I believe Theo, and I believe Lauren Coleman, um, pointed out that on many of these giants, if not all, but certainly a large number of them, had been proved to have been fakes. Mm. 
in the sort of post PG Barnum era of let's get let's get uh, let's get a um, curiosity that people will pay to come and see. That's right, sucker born every minute type of thing. That's right, that's right. But um, I, I think. You know, just from my standpoint as someone that's done research and from a historical aspect, I think there's enough tantalizing evidence within uh, the archives that something strange was being uncovered at certain points uh, in the uh, in the in the 19th century. I, I mean, that's my conclusion, and I know that this is you know something that should be argued, uh, but uh, I think that there were times when people were were uncovering very very strange artifacts uh, that could not be explained by by contemporary science. It's not really something I know um, enough about. What I've already told you is pretty well all I know about them. So um, it's something I, I need to look into more before I can really give a proper um, opinion on something. Well, I'll tell you what, the gentleman that you mentioned, we would love to have him on our show. I would yes. love to do a show concerning giants because I think that it's a very interesting subject. Well, email me sometime. I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. I, I, I will do that, sir. I will do that indeed. Um, Can I ask a question about um, the new hot topic on the cryptid uh, list, for the most part in the U.S., has been the dogman, or what you would call a werewolf. Um, what, are your, what are your feelings on this cryptid and its validity being uh, present globally? Yeah, it's on the top ten list. Yes, it's not well. It's not really in the top ten list. No, that's, that's why I said it's not because he's kind of like the new kid on the on the block. Yeah. <laughs> it's the latest in. I mean, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, there have been stories of human-shaped figures who are covered in hair and who have certain other um, animal attributes. Saint Christopher was supposed to be a cynocephalus, and there have been stories of. Dog, dog-headed men going back for thousands of years and the fact that they are now being seen in the US my gut instinct is to say that it is something zooform rather than something that's flesh and blood right I'd love to be wrong but then again it was me who first came up with the term zooform so I can't really go against my own uh, my own concept but I think it is, going to, it is something paranormal, something zooform, rather than something that's a bona fide uh, cryptid. Well, there, there's there's a, a couple of people that have been investigating these, these cryptids. Um, I used to find it more fantasy-based, and I was hoping it wasn't real. Until you start uh, interviewing people that have more to lose than to gain by talking about it. Um, however, there, there's the, someone has come up with a typing system of seven types, and there are some that are just looks like dogs, a canine, and it has a, it's a pure, like a German Shepherd that's 15 feet tall. Um, where others have a kind of a mix between like a, a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch and a dog. Um, so, again, going back to what we, we started with in, in, with the slave trade, going to the depths of Africa, uh, having different species kind of gives it more plausibility for me uh, and, and the evolution of that versus you know, there's a giant werewolf running around, you know, killing people. I think the fact that the species which our species is closest to, the species which our species has been intertwined with for, I 
think it's 35,000 years now, it's a dog. And the fact that dogs, you know, um, there's the saying in English, isn't there, that dogs are man's best friend. And the dogs are so closely tied in with the human psyche, I think it'd be surprising if people didn't see dogs with, cat, with uh, people with dogs' heads. Right. I think it's a... I think it's a, a innate part of the human psyche, which does is what, after all, I believe anyway, creates zooform phenomena. Yeah. That's a very interesting perspective on this as well, too. Um, whenever I investigate, whenever I write, I like to pull in all aspects. You know, let's look at the idea of the cryptid uh, from a scientific point of view, but also look at it from a historical point of view, from an archetypical point of view, and even a linguistics point of view. You know, psychologically. These things mean something to us, whether they're flesh and blood or not. They mean something to us, and they have an impact on who we are as human beings. And to try to get into those particular strands of the DNA to prove why this is needed is, I think, just as fascinating as those people out there in camouflage making plaster casts of Bigfoot tracks. <laughs> I agree. Oh, by the way, guys, if you or indeed anybody listening to this hears some funny snuffling noises... It's not me turning into a werewolf. <laughs> it's my little terrier, Archie, who keeps on jumping up for a cuddle, jumping up onto my lap for a cuddle, and then jumping off again. So, <laughs> That's awesome. That is fine with me. They are man's best friends. Yeah, there, there was a particular program, I think it was called The Cave of Lost Dreams, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it was a beautifully done um, uh, movie uh, concerning Lascaux uh, and, and the, the cave paintings there. But uh, there were actually fossilized prints of uh, a small child, uh, you know, journeying into the cave. And beside the child was fossilized footprints of a, a, a wolf, uh, you know. So some researchers have suggested that that wolf was actually tracking this child in as a prey, as a prey item. Uh, but they also said in the movie that wouldn't it be very interesting if that was just the child's pet and they were taking a walk together. And I kind of like to think that. I, I really do. I think that there is that interconnectivity with animals as a whole. Um, we are a modern society. We have domesticated uh, most everything that's wild, and whenever we venture into the wild, we call it camping. So we really have lost that aspect uh, and rhythm of nature. Uh, but I think that if we were to get back down to basics, um, really what makes us human is our interconnectivity with the natural world. Yeah, something that interests me was about 10 years ago, and I can't remember the name of the person, but there was a famous sociologist who actually suggested that it wasn't the human race who uh, domesticated dogs. It was the other way around, because when our ancestors were... Um, hairy geezers wandering around, wandering around the plains of Eurasia and before they had before we had the trappings of civilization we would have followed the wolf packs we would have followed the wolf packs looking for food looking for scraps and it's no it's nowhere near a big paradigm shift to imagine that uh, 
one day was that quite often that um, a orphan baby wolf was ever been picked up by one of the proto-humans who were following the wolf pack and um, and suddenly that actually our social behaviour comes from having been pivotally involved with wolves rather than the way around. And that's a fantastic uh, point. Um, uh, the book that I wrote on Dogman tracking the werewolf through history, I actually have a couple chapters in there related to that particular notion. Um, whenever we were trying to fight for survival uh, among species of megafauna and animals that were more equipped at uh, catching prey than us, I think that we probably took a huge cue from the idea of hunting in packs and communication and uh, just the way that the wolf was able to work itself into a society, uh, especially a higher, hierarchical society in order to maintain, um, to maintain life within that community. I think that people necessarily had to follow the pattern of what the wolf was doing and again looking through history and as you study you know the, the legends and the folklore um you know rome was founded upon the idea that a wolf was able to nurse two children uh into uh the the, the traditional founders of that particular civilization yeah i think that of all the non-human species the great wolf is probably the one, well it's most definitely the one that sociologically anyway, we are most, sociologically and psychologically, are most closely inspired. Because the other, say, you know, cats and horses and cattle, they were, they were the next in far, far, far more recently than the wolf. Yes, I, I have a cat that has zero domestication. <laughs> 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 I have four cats of various degrees of domestication. <laughs> it's, it's actually a very interesting theory, and, and it actually goes both ways. With the humans watching wolves or wild animals and, and studying how they uh, go about their what's natural to them, there have been studies, tons of studies, where uh, scientists have gone in or people have adopted abandoned animals of multiple different species, and they bring them into their homes, and somehow these animals seem to adopt some of the, the, the behaviors or traits of human beings. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can learn if we can slow down in these days and actually study things and, and study be it, uh, creatures, cryptids, uh, individuals. But well, we, it's a crazy yeah. generation we have now. It's 30 seconds and then I'm done. Taking on from what you said there, we've got a crow that was rescued as a fledgling found in, uh, and was found in somebody's garden flapping around, they couldn't fly properly. And so it got to an animal rescue centre who then gave it to us. And he's been living in our kitchen for the last three years, in a big indoor aviary. Now the interesting thing about him is that he has picked up on my smaller dog, the terrier's bark, and so any time somebody comes into the back door, it's not just the dog's little bark, it's the crow little bark as well. Very nice. <laughs> I don't know what that is. interesting, That's actually fantastic and fa fascinating how, how they just pick up. And why, of all the animals that you do have in your home, or family members, as we would like to call them sometimes, um, why the crow actually singled out the terrier? 
versus anybody else. And I know it could have been the signal of the parking, but there may have been a connection there that, you know, a hierarchy by this animal. Yeah. The terrier isn't actually the boss dog. The boss dog is my... Oh, I've got a, a, a very old um, bulldog boxer bitch, cross bitch, and the crow has never tried to imitate Prudence's very deep woof. It's just a funny... It's an annoying little yap of the terrier that he's got off to the sea. Well, I'll tell you what, to scaffold this into the world of the crypto, uh, you know, Bigfoot uh, have been reported to not only make very interesting whistle calls and even imitating the sound of coyotes, but people have actually reported these creatures being able to imitate um, human sounds like yes. calling somebody's name. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is a really fascinating facet of the study of these things as a whole and the way that these creatures, these things, whatever they are, seem to be able to um, imitate sounds and words is something that's totally fascinating. It's, it's, when you... <laughs> When you're actually in the woods doing your, your, your investigations or research, some people call it hunting. I, I, we, what we do, we don't hunt. Um, we, go, we go searching, we go researching, investigating, because we're not out to, to hunt this thing down, to hurt it or kill it. Um, but it's very interesting. You have to be suspect of almost every sound you're hearing, uh, from crickets to bats to, to dogs barking, because you don't know where the line is between if, if that's a real canine versus a Bigfoot imitating it or a Sasquatch. And when we were out in the woods, um, we heard some things and vocalizations that were just the borderline. There was a little bit of something in it, and I can't explain it, but it had that je ne sais quoi that um, said, this one's suspect. Uh, but I've heard hours of, of vocalizations on just this cryptid alone, and it's just fascinating. They're having a dialogue with each other, um, yelling, screaming. They're even singing, and rather well, actually. Um, so I have a feeling that uh, Bigfoots in general in the cryptid realm are, are voyeurs into the world of the human being. They've mingled with them enough to know when, when to run and when to just, you can sit there and just watch. So when, Ron, you were mentioning you know, going camping, I'm wondering, every time someone does go camping, how many other cryptids or creatures are actually watching this group and seeing what they do? Well, I think that's a theory, especially picking yes. up the idea of names. You know, people naturally talk, and, you know, whenever you're camping, you know, you're always calling out to your friend because if they go behind the tree, you automatically yeah. think something happened. So I think that if you would observe for maybe even an hour, you would at least be able to pick up the rhythm of a name, especially a short name, a monosyllabic name. And I don't think there would be much stretch of the imagination to think that an intelligent, self-aware animal would be able to imitate that sound. Well, 100%, but I think also the curiosity of most of these, and, we're, and sticking with the just Bigfoot, uh, Sasquatch, um, is the fact that they don't always interact with human beings. They, they basically have a, a plethora of, of forest to, to roam through, and that's their playground in their living space. And to be frank, the, the young do get bored of that. 
they're still toddlers and just like we my my children do not listen at times um they're curious they're toddlers i think they they you know it's we're going to find a time when more and more people are having interactions with younger sasquatch and i'm not talking about the teenage area i'm talking about the young young because they see a pretty girl or a young boy and they want to play um they don't understand that the dangers associated with that because Frankly, if you're in the woods with your little child and you see a Sasquatch coming at them, the first reaction is to grab the child and run away. There's a fear there. Um, but I think down the line, and we're getting to that zone or, or that time frame when more and more interactions with these cryptids are going to come out. I, I think I think that is uh, is the case, but uh, of course, uh, uh, concerning you know my my belief system and my skeptical uh, side, you know the jury's still out on whether these things are actually out there. I mean that's the reason why we have a radio show and why we have guests on like Jonathan Downs because we're trying to get to this to unravel this mystery that's been haunting humanity probably for something around you know twenty five or thirty five thousand years. The idea of the other out there, a man like creature, you know. And I think that's what makes the paranormal world so utterly fascinating because these are all questions that need to be answered. And there's so many different, um, you know, philosophies and schools of thought going into the answer that, uh, you know, having an open forum like this really does make a difference in how we view these creatures. 100%. I, I cannot agree with you more. I, I was wondering, Jonathan, do you think that the more, more we discuss these cryptids, um, the more we can get them more into a mainstream or uh, where we move them from the boogie van side or, or the, the, you know, the evil side to a positive forum where we can keep discussing them and maybe come to uh, terms with meeting them someday. I don't know. This is something which I am totally in two minds about. But the idea is a fascinating one. I, I, I worry about the savagery of human beings uh, that's always there, and even the nicest person out there. We are the most unpleasant and vicious species on the planet. <laughs> we are. Uh, we have to. If we don't understand it, we simply kill it, don't we? Yep. No, that, 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 that's, never, that's never good for anything. And if you think why some of these cryptids, like when we talk about Bigfoot, or these other seemingly intelligent creatures, if they do exist, why they do not have any interaction with humans. I mean, you have these tantalizing reports of uh, Bigfoot encountering children and having a sort of uh, uh, friend relationship with them, uh, but never concerning an adult. Well, when I hear stories like that, I tend to think that that is more closely akin to the stories that have been forever of children having friendships with parents. I think it's right. part of that. Yes, yes. And of course, John, now that you've talked about that, you know, one of my theories is to kind of pull all this kind of stuff together, that um, is it possible that we're not talking about flesh and blood animals out there, but is it possible that everything that we view as cryptids could indeed be some sort of natural energy that some folk have called fairy, and they're just simply able to manifest themselves uh, across the, uh, the, spans, uh, the, the expanse of time in different ways? Not all cryptids, there are some cryptids. Some cryptids, sure. Animals. 
Yes. Yeah. So what are yep. So what are we talking about? No, I'm sorry. The Phospholipin Tasmanian wolf is obviously a threatened bird animal. Uh, the Orenpendek is obviously a threatened bird animal. The giant eagle, the St. Selena, is obviously a threatened bird animal. But when you come to deal with the some of the less tangible things, like Bigfoot, like some of the Chupacabra cases, I think we're talking about something there which is a zooform phenomenon. It is paranormal. It is something that is not flesh and blood. And, and that, that, that is also uh, extremely worthy of study, isn't it? Well, yeah, I've been studying this stuff for years. That's right, that's right. Uh, over in America here, over here in the New World, uh, they, uh, they don't take too kindly to the idea of uh, studying uh, a fae. <laughs> and uh, I had an encounter myself with a Bigfoot-type creature in Britain, which I said then and still say now, was something, uh, it was a zooform phenomenon, it was something parapsychological in nature. I said so on uh, my website, this was back in 2003, and I immediately got kicked out of um, three different Bigfoot discussion groups on um, Yahoo groups, and I started getting death threats because I dared to say something wasn't a flesh and blood. It's ridiculous. It, wow. Yes, it is ridiculous. And when you come up with certain theories that go against, I guess, the, the, the norm or whatever is basically being discussed, most people don't have the, the stomach to, to actually entertain other ideas or theories. And they get offended. And unfortunately, in our society today, uh, there is no dialogue. It's just, you're wrong, bye. And they kick you out. So... One of the things that's most wrong about social media, because it means that any idiot can shoot his mouth off, uh, what's the word, immediately. Without, I mean, anybody, anybody can vent their opinion without having to think about it. Yeah, <laughs> and call themselves an expert without having any qualifications whatsoever. Or the years yeah. time in. Mm. Qualifications, whatever. But I've been doing this thirty years. That's <laughs> <laughs> but, that, but that's the point. We have people that are that are coming in, and I'm going to use the term kids that think that they know everything about everything, and uh, they really don't. Uh, they don't know anything before 1980, um, or they don't know anything before 1990. And you have gentlemen like yourselves who are pioneers in this field, thirty plus years of of research experience, and for anybody to fall, have their ears turn deaf to you, um, is just, my opinion, unacceptable. Well, this is very kind of you to say so. I mean, this has been something I've been doing professionally for 30 years, and it's been my hobby for 50. <laughs> I first discovered the idea of cryptozoology. That was 50 years ago, and um, it has been one of the leading things of my life. Well, you know what? You know what, John? Hey, we lost you. I think your microphone may have dropped. Oh, sorry, that was my fault. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that was me being stupid. What was the last bit you? Were <laughs> uh, oh, you you were saying about uh, studying cryptozoology for uh, for uh, the past fifty years. Well, yeah, I first I first heard about cryptozoology in nineteen sixty eight, and ever since it's been one of the leading passions of my life. 
And, and, and that's the reason why uh, I was so looking forward to having you on our show, and the reason Brian was so looking forward to having you on our show, because... Uh, you, you said what was that, John? I, I, you said I was looking so forward to having. Uh, well, well, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's because it's it's happening right now. Yes. So I was looking forward to it until now it's actually occurring as we speak. So my anticipation now is over and it's come to fruition. Ronald, I'm just being stupid. I know, I know, I know. I, know. I wanted to justify myself, though. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we like to look, uh, whatever anybody, whatever career path anybody takes, we all have to stand on the shoulders of giants to get to that particular place, to, you know, to, to, to go on, to look over the next horizon and make it new. And, and you, my friend, are one of those giants that we are very lucky to have, and uh, I, I appreciate you allowing us to stand on your shoulders for an hour. You're very, very sweet. It's very kind of you to say so. Yes, yes. Uh, and next time, uh, for all of our listeners out there as well, too, um, they, they have to understand that behind any good man is is probably an even better woman. And I would love to have your wife on the show because you, as uh, uh, the publisher of, of one of my books on vampires, uh, it is your lovely wife who really is the uh, the, the the passion behind uh, this uh, this uh, publishing adventure and venture and. And, uh, you know, I needed books, and, and, and the lady had them out to me in no time. And I would really like to have her on the show uh, with you sometime to discuss what it is like to be married to somebody like Jonathan Downs. Oh, Christ, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I, I don't think that she gets enough uh, <laughs> due there in your place and uh, in, in, in Devin with all of your... Uh, your uh, your work that you're doing, I, I could just imagine the kind, because not only do you deal with the cryptozoological, you're also dealing with uh, music as well. I mean, yes. you are uh, a writer on, uh, you know, rock and roll stuff. Yes, I mean, I'm the editor of the magazine for uh, Gonzo, there's a company owned by a friend of mine called Gonzo Multimedia, and I edit their, their weekly magazine, which is, without much of imagination, called Gonzo Weekly. And I also make music of my own. I'm still a musician, and I do all sorts of other stuff as well. And I write novels nobody reads. <laughs> Where can we find your novels? I'll yes. finally put them up on our website. What do you, I didn't know this, John. Well, just look on look on um, Amazon. All my books are up on Amazon. Well, we'll definitely put links to those novel. up there. Yep. Sorry? The most recent novel is called The Song of Pan, so just have a look up there. But if I'm allowed to do a little plug... Please do, please. Every month, round about the middle of the month, we do a web TV show, on, uh, which is out on YouTube, and Ronald was a guest on it a few months ago, and I'd very much like to have both of you guys on at some point. But if you want to watch it, it's free, it's called On The Track, and all you have to do is just go to CFZ TV and on YouTube, and you'll be able to see the latest Well, we're definitely going to put that uh, links to that on our uh, website, all our Facebook pages, and we're going to put links for the books, as well as the website that and, and uh, you have there, the 14 Society. Uh, where else can the listeners actually get in touch with you, Jonathan? 
If you want to contact me about um, a sighting or anything really, email me john, j-o-n, at eclipse, e-c-l-i-p-s-e, dot co, dot u-k. Perfect. Well, yeah, that, that's uh, that's excellent, uh, and and then I would, and I'm hoping to meet you uh, in person uh, eventually. Uh, it it, uh, it wouldn't be soon enough before I could actually uh, sit down and talk with you and, and pick your brain in person. But uh, it was fantastic having you on, and I hope you enjoyed uh, stepping inside the Goblin Universe with us today. Of course I did. I'd love to come back again sometime. We would love to have you yes. on again sometime. I cannot wait. Maybe you could be a monthly guest of ours and just tell us what's going on in that crazy world of cryptozoology. That would be fantastic. I'd be quite happy to do anything like that. Well, this is fantastic. Well, it, it is appearing, my friend, that that is all the time that we have yes. uh, inside this uh, this world of ours. Uh, so we're going to have to bid you adieu. But thank you again, my friend, for your time and uh, your patience and bearing with us getting all this uh, stuff together this morning. Thank you. This morning, it's nearly tea time. <laughs> well, it's approaching the noon hour here as we are pre-recording this. But yes, enjoy your tea. Again, tell your wife that both Brian and I said hello. And we're hoping to hear from her as well, too. And John, it's been a complete pleasure. Every time you're on the show, or every time I talk to you, or every time I read something that you put out, I learn something from you. So thank you very much for being part of this crazy world of ours. Thank you very much for having me on board. <laughs> all right, my friend, well, I'm going to sign off for now. Uh, so to all of our goblins out there, until next time, I'm Ronald Murphy. And I am Brian Bowden. And thanks for stepping inside the Goblin Universe with us, and we'll see you again next week. The concept of shape-shifting is ingrained on our psyche lurking in our collective unconscious and stalking our nightmares. Crypto guru Ronald Murphy tracks the dogmen through history, beginning with the hunt in the dim beginnings of the human race and follows the tenuous tracks of the werewolf to the modern age. This compelling study seeks the monster in all of us, but more importantly shows the readers the man behind the wolf. On Dogman is available on Amazon.com.